Welcome to the Live Leadership Podcast with myself, Leela Singh. All things coaching, career, and personal branding. This podcast is for ambitious career professionals like you, wanting to create a life of choice and freedom, to be, do, and have more through overcoming limitations, to develop new perspectives and insights, and to redefine your success, be that in work, health, relationships, and so much more. On today's My Brand HQ podcast, we're going to be speaking with Kish Hirani. Kish brings close to 25 years experience within the video gaming industry. He started as a software engineer, swiftly attaining technical director status or similar roles at development studios and publishing houses, including BBC Worldwide Multimedia. The second half of his career, he moved to platform holders, starting with Microsoft and then settling at Sony PlayStation for eight years as a head of developer services, where he was developing and managing resources for all developer facing technical activities. Currently, Kish is the CTO of Terra Virtua and has taken up the voluntary position of the first chair of UK advocacy group BAME, that's Black, Asian, Minority and Ethnics, in games, promoting diversity in the industry. Kish was listed as one of the top 100 most influential BAME leaders in UK tech in the Financial Times, as well as being awarded the Diversity Star Award at the annual Video Games Develop Star Award, both in 2019. And he was also listed as a top 100 Asian stars in the UK tech by Diversity UK in 2018. In today's episode, Kish will be sharing with us his journey into the video games industry, how daily he gets to combine his expertise with his passion and encourages others to do the same, why he advocates for more diversity in gaming, how he came to find himself as the founding chair of Bayman Games, and then the myths around video gaming, as well as the advantages of gaming for those who participate. So let's head over and hear what Kish has to say. Kish, hi there. Thank you so much for being here today. How are you? I'm good. My pleasure to be here. Uh, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you. Um, so I just want to kick straight in with this because there's so much I, I, I want to hear from you today. And, you know, you have got, you know, almost 25 years in the gaming industry. So tell me, tell me about that. What actually brought you into the, in the gaming industry to begin with? Right. Okay. Uh, and I'll refer to it as video gaming industry because unfortunately gaming industry can be quite a few other industries, uh, which involves you spending a lot of money without having any other control. <laughs> So right. let, let's refer to it as, as the video gaming industry. Um, yeah. I've always been into video games. Uh, so maybe I could take the journey back. That I was born in Kenya mm -hmm. uh, and uh, moved to Britain when I was a teenager. So my journey into video games really began in a country where no video games development would have been happening or there's no role models as such. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, it was, uh, your uh, typical young kid who's just really interested in technology and that I think way back in the 70s or so brought the Atari Pong machine uh, which is a video very video games uh, first video games console and I, I probably want to claim probably the first one in Kenya uh, because not many people had them there so that's 
fun. That's innovative. That's new. But it's only a lot when I go into my teens where I got into programming and I had a, a personal computer as well, which that had got me and so I started self-learning programming. And the beauty of uh, programming, especially if, and it's still valid now, which is crazy, uh, that most of the other programmings when you're young, it's not that inspiring. Yeah. Writing Excel sheet, writing accountancy, etc. But writing a video game, you learn exact same skills of programming. And uh, that's how I really, I started playing games. And then uh, in those days, you just had to have magazines and copy the code. And after like about two days of typing the entire code, which is in the magazine into your computer, it plays a game. And that's okay. how we learned. And to a great extent, a lot of uh, individuals still who are self-learning programming, that's the most entertaining way to learn. So got into that is like, wow, look, I've created something and look, I can move something here and there using my code and the creature changes. And so that got me fascinated from there. But uh, moving forward, uh, uh, came to university. My first degree was mathematics and computer sciences. So I really wanted to do computer sciences, but this was like the early 90s and already everybody was doing computer sciences, but we aren't quite sure where this computer science thing is going. So as a safety net, there was a mathematics there because it's a uh, exact science uh, uh, back then and now obviously as well. Uh, and then I went and, well, but by the time I graduated, it was uh, almost everybody had a computer science degree as such, but exaggerating there. So I just had to stand out. Uh, and it's something I wanted to do something with graphics, video games. My ideal job, would I wanted to be in the movie industry. I wanted to be special effects for games, uh, movies like Star Wars and everything like that. So this was still in the early 90s. Unfortunately, in Britain, we just didn't have that industry uh, which it's I been mean, coming forward now to 2020 or so, uh, or in the last 10 years, we actually lead quite a bit of uh, special effects and uh, uh, in Britain itself. So anyway, back then, the, my second choice became, okay, it's video games industry, that's exciting. Uh, but I went out and then did my master's uh, in computer sciences because that I just wanted to stand out uh, because in the job market, my very first job was a database programming job it paid crazy well for a graduate i was getting paid wow and uh in london obviously but it's it's one of those jobs uh, i'm not belittling any engineering software engineering job or so but programming accountancy software etc. it's boring it's it's you shut your brain and you just it's, it's almost set formulas and that's all you're doing day in day out and you get your salary and you go home and uh it is, I just like, yeah. And my creative brain just said, I can do better than this. That's why I went and did my master's at Edinburgh University. And that's where I would say, I wouldn't say poached, but uh, uh, I was just doing a lot of visual, visualizations and uh, that sort of uh, subjects. Uh, uh, and my professor uh, was connected to the video games industry. And he just said, uh, uh, there's this company set up in uh, Dundee. Uh, they are formed out of... Uh, uh, the company which made Lemmings and Grand Theft Auto, uh, which actually not many people uh, know this, but it originated from Scotland in Dundee, the, the Grand Theft Auto and Lemmings as well, if, if you know those uh, names of the games. And they formed a company and would you like to go and interview? It's like, yeah. And so went for an interview and 
uh, we didn't talk anything about programming. I was going for a software engineering job. We just talked about special effects and how movie industries and uh, the video games industry is combining. And on my way back after the interview, I was like, uh, you've got the job. Do you want the job? It's like, wow, okay. I guess I need to tell my parents, somebody that I'm not going to come back to England, London. And I accepted the job. And after graduating, the next day, I just started, they wanted me to start immediately. And I was in the video games industry. And that's my journey to the video games industry, how it started. Wow. <laughs> and you obviously enjoy it because you're still there now. You're still a big part of that. Absolutely. Yep. It's a very young thinking industry because I, I think a lot, your edge doesn't matter. As long as you're thinking young, then uh, it's an industry where you're creative and you've got more to give back uh, as opposed to you've got your sell by date and off you go type of things. In, uh, so yeah, so that's the beauty of that, this industry where it keeps you mentally young. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so you, you kind of ended up at, at Sony. Um, in the area of R&D around PlayStation. So tell me a bit about that. How did that come about? Right. Okay. So, so um, before Sony, maybe it's, it's probably uh, uh, early stage of my career, I was very, very smart. I was a programmer. I was uh, writing code or so. Then unfortunately, the management thing came along. Uh, circumstantially, I became uh, a technical director uh, and then you're managing smart people. And that became my first half of my career then. Uh, leading technology teams uh, and after that with it's a young industry and we could get a bit more into that uh, uh, got made redundant and sort of opportunity of like well I think it'd be better to rather than out of uh, being in development let's move into the publishing side where the funding and the money is so uh, I went to the publishing side so my first job uh, was uh, at uh, BBC so BBC Worldwide uh, had a multimedia division. I think they've reformed that division or so. So that's overlooking lots and lots of studios uh, uh, with the fundings to be able to create the games and the IPs. So you've got Bob the Builders and Tweenies and Robert Wars and all those brands which I've worked on back then. And so that then led me to another publishing uh, video game studio. So the opportunity came up to work with Microsoft. So, and that is very relevant because that led me to Sony, uh, which is slightly odd because uh, if you talk to any video gamers or so, most of the diehard video gamers are like one school or the other. It's like Xbox or PlayStation type of thing. So anyway, I was at uh, Microsoft. I was contracting. I was reporting directly into Seattle. And um, uh, at that point, I think uh, it's, 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 I mean, nothing wrong. It was the days, early 2000s or so. Microsoft wanted the position to move into US. It's just how it was uh, back then. Things are very different now where you know, Europe is quite a well-established headquarters for Microsoft in terms of video gaming as well. And that uh, stage of my life, I just wasn't wanting to pack up and go and move to Seattle. Uh, so uh, I said no. And uh, the opportunity at Sony came up to head up a... Uh, within the R&D division, head of developer services. So a bit quantify what, what that means. That's basically every single technology-driven uh, platform or idea or anything else which comes along for a video games developer to enable them to make better games, basically. 
So it's quite a prop, uh, maybe I, I should re-simplify that. So uh, video games, uh, especially video games consoles uh, programming or so, it's quite top secret. Uh, it's not something where you just go out on the internet. It's not like when I was a little kid where I would just grab a magazine and stop uh, coding or so. So what we need is divisions like the one I was heading where you're helping developers get the best out of the platform itself. So it's highly confidential as well. It's one-on-one. -on -one. You go and help them uh, all the way from the start of when you're designing the games console, uh, you get some feedback to well, when the games console is live, get uh, them engineering support, technical support, uh, all the tools, etc., uh, to get the best product out. And that became sort of an eight-year stretch of running a division, which was all about empowering uh, content creators. Okay, okay. And, and um, from the way you're talking about it, you were passionate about that? Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's going to be, I don't think it frequently happens in your life where you're involved with products like PlayStation 4 and PlayStation VR, uh, pretty much from concept uh, all the way till retail. And that journey, you know, it's, it's priceless uh, to be part of that and to have an input in a lot of where the direction things took place, all uh, based in London. Um, and, you know, if, again, most people wouldn't be aware, but Sony PlayStation, the way it was structured, we have got the Japan headquarters, which was the Sony headquarters uh, back then. And then we have got the US and then Europe was headed from London where I was based. Uh, so there's three regional headquarters or so, and we had pretty good dynamics in terms of how we worked together or so all reported into Japan. So right. it was quite quite a, a prominent position, uh, and within Sony, you know, we had a lot of influence. Sony PlayStation itself uh, influence on the directions of the products we made. Wow! And and so I mean, you you joined that industry very early on, really. So, what have you seen in terms of the growth of that industry, and how has it evolved over time? Right. So. Uh, in Britain, we I think last year we counted it to be roughly 30 years. We celebrated it as 30 years of video games industry. Uh, so relatively young industry. Now, the way it's grown is crazy growth in terms of right now for the last three years uh, in Britain, but Europe for sure as well, uh, the revenue for video games industry is... Uh, bigger than TV, film, and music combined. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, yes. And uh, so that uh, brings in a lot of issues with it as well, that it's grown too fast. But then 30 years is not too fast as such. But hmm. if we look at the scale of the revenue uh, in terms of growth, and you know, if anybody would say, it's like, how is that possible? I mean, music industry is massive everybody who's playing Candy Crush on their phone and doing any microtransactions or any games or so, all the way out to diehard uh, players who are just spending a lot of money uh, in AAA games, console games or so, that's all the revenue. And you can just see how that combined can pretty much become uh, the biggest industry, creative industry as such, uh, which mm -hmm. is contributing towards a great... Um, vibrant economy in most countries, uh, especially in the Western world and Japan. Mm. And, and I should say Asia, like, you know, China and Taiwan, uh, th those sort of countries. Uh, so South Korea, uh, video gaming is such a big revenue-driven uh, industry as such. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and so, 
I know um, you're the founding chair of BAME in, in games, so the yep. Black Asian Minority Ethnic um, uh, Diversity within the gaming industry, video gaming industry. So tell me about that. How did that come about? Right. Okay. So um, again, as I said, uh, so I, was, I was made redundant at Sony, and then it became an opportunity of uh, uh, where do I go next, like anybody else would. And uh, so the first thing I did is actually pack my bags and I was born in Kenya, so I took a month off and just go out in Kenya. I used to work with a charity, a children's charity, back when I was a teenager in Kenya. So it gave me an opportunity to just go and do some voluntary work. And one of the key voluntary work as well I do, it's sort of not linked, but it just got me into the sort of spirit of like, I think it's time to give back, uh, was uh, one of the key things, especially in developing countries or so, is education and everything else is actually not bad, uh, but it's at the age of six. So there is free education, despite whatever you think in terms of poverty lines, etc. But what lacks is the age of four to six. Uh, if you're in a capital city, you're privileged, uh, like anywhere else in the world or so. But if you're in the rural areas, especially outside of Nairobi in Kenya, mm -hmm. um, that's where you typically see where kids will just be on the streets or on the rivers or whatever else out there uh, playing about and doing what they do as the parents are uh, working or in practice. And so this charity has set up uh, a nursery for four to six year olds. So when I heard about this, it's like, uh, can I come along and show them technology? Uh, so I had uh, the Google Cardboard, which is a virtual reality cardboard and my phone in hand. And I just wanted to go and inspire uh, all these young kids uh, and show them what your reality. Uh, so this was five years ago. So, and um, sorry, four years ago. And uh, their reaction was exactly the same as the very first time we showed it to the most cutting edge uh, video games developing engineers or so when they see VR, they just said, wow. And that's the same reaction. What my aim was just to give what you can give to individuals who are that sort of age, and why that's important is, uh, let, let me just see, let, let me go back on what, what, what uh, the reaction, which was, uh, is I want to empower the time. Because if you've been shown VR four years ago, like with most of the developers in the Western world or so, have the privilege to have seen that technology maybe five or six years ago or so. Now, nobody can ever take that away from one or two kids who really, uh, in 20 years' time, would be uh, working virtual reality. Because I want them to, when somebody says, yeah, we've been working virtual reality for 85 years, I want that kid to say, yeah, I experienced my first virtual reality 24 years ago. You know, that power of time, nobody can take that away from them. Mm -hmm. So that was my simple goal. There's nothing else I wanted out of that. And, uh, and I, I was just humbled by the reaction. And in fact, I, the, the headmistress of that nursery still keeps in touch and the kids nicknamed me uncle of video. So they called me, when is uncle of video coming back? And I would love to go back and just show them uh, what the technologies and things which are very, very accessible right now, especially because everybody knows what a mobile phone is. So, so I, I want to just cover slightly more of that before I go into how we formed Baming Games because it got my mindset into so much to give back and so this four to six year old stage is such a vital stage uh in any kid's life and in the western world in capital cities or so we are all privileged if you're got your kid 
a television and they can sit in front of a television and watch cartoons for half an hour uh, or an hour or forever. So that's a discipline they're gaining there where they're listening to something and paying attention to. When you're out in the rural area, when you yes, you get a lot of life skills or so. As soon as you're put into school at the age of six, you're unfortunately tagged as disruptive because you've never had the privilege of sitting down and listening to somebody for half an hour and learning something, even if it's meaningless like a cartoon or so. And that's such an important stage, which that's why I call it as a privilege. And we take it for granted that, you know, reading a book, reading a story to your kid, etc. That not a lot of people have that privilege, unfortunately, especially in the developing world. So I really wanted to nail that. It drew me to that charity because of that purpose. And so, yes, moving forward, I came, well, I wish I could stay there forever. But when I came back, uh, we gathered around a table. So this wonderful gentleman who, and it's a gentleman who formed Women in Games uh, seven years before. And he said, this is women in games in the video games industry. Um, do you think we need a baby in games, a black uh, uh, Asian minority ethnic in video games? And almost around the table, we went like, there isn't one. And there, obviously there wasn't one. And so it's like, yeah, we, absolutely. I think we should. I mean, uh, there's no question about it. Now, I was one of the ones around the table who was very vocal on, if we do form, I, I would love to get involved, but only if it's, advocating what richness diversity brings because unfortunately if you do end up being a what's terrible by not having uh, or issues with not having diversity or so again it can be quite vast and wide uh, in terms of the topics you'd end up uh, trying to cover and as volunteers it needs to be for business to listen it needs to why does it make creative sense to have a diverse team uh, and so unfortunately for me, I guess, or fortunately, I'd say, uh, everybody just like, wow, okay, yeah, that's, that's what the org should be. It should be productive. It should be uh, what industry wants to listen rather than just saying, you're terrible. You need to increase your diversity. Here's a quarter, meet those quarter, blah, blah, et cetera. So I, I prefer the proactive, let's, it, what's the positive? What, make a business, learn why it matters and they'll change. Uh, and so, uh, I was asked, well, well volunteered. Why don't you be? Why don't you chair the org as we find it? And so I said, great. Uh, I'll uh, I'll do it for six months, and then we'll just elect a new chairperson. Uh, and here we are, four years on. I'm still the chair. <laughs> so and that's that's how Baby Games was formed. Uh, we've uh, over the years we've had tremendous support and given back to the video games industry, all as volunteers. Uh, one of our primary activity, which I'll just add, which is quite active and it's uh, uh, COVID comes into that as well, where it sort of disrupted our flow. But we used to have monthly meetups. And the whole idea for that was we have a meetup at a video games uh, studio. So we want ethnic minorities to come along to a studio where they could possibly be able to work. And I mean, some of this, in fact, majority of people get in the video games industry because they love video games. And to be able to go to a studio which created one of the games that uh, they made, it's like, wow, uh, it's not that accessible, although it might sound like very obvious. You should have studio tours. It's just not practical. You'd have that. So we changed that to, uh, we have a panel. So what I do, a panel formula is very, very simple. Uh, either me or somebody else will moderate the panel. We get uh, two or three, usually three ethnic minorities on the panel from the studio. 
and just talk about that life journey, how they got into the video games industry, and then just general Q&A, and then there's a networking after that. And for the, the company itself, it's, it's a moment to show we are looking for diverse talent uh, and just showing the amazing diverse people who are working at the studio says it all because visually that's such a powerful message. And somebody else uh, mentioned this, also, but visually, especially for younger people, that's such an uh, impactful uh, statement without saying anything, just seeing somebody who they can relate to. When you're old in your life, more confident in your careers or so, it probably doesn't matter that much or so, but that goes with female, any minority or so, where you can see somebody you can relate to would make you a lot more comfortable and confident. Mm -hmm. you know, in the early stage of your life, nobody's that confident on um, applying for roles or so. so. So that became a very successful. Then come COVID, and then I'll end here on, on that. Uh, we couldn't physically meet. So we've just now, it took a while, uh, gone virtual. So we do exactly the same uh, panels or so, but virtually. So we had our first one last week. So end of June. And we're going to carry on. Uh, but it's given us an amazing opportunity because, again, we are all volunteers. A lot of the studios we were tackling were based in London or in and around London. Easy access where you could get to. But now it meant we could go far out, all the amazing studios all across Britain. And we've got more exciting uh, series to come because we've just gone virtual. And uh, I definitely will not restrict that to uh, UK. We'll just go out and invite all studios around the world to come and uh, have our uh, webinars as such. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And you're, you're obviously a strong advocate of, of diversity in, in technology and in the video games industry. So tell me, what are the advantages of having diversity in the video games industry? So. Uh, not just video games, I mean, this goes with any other industry. So what diversity brings uh, is the, and the richness of diversity is uh, it brings diverse creative ideas. And that's what matters. I mean, you, uh, any product which is being developed, the classic um, examples which people use is, uh, uh, especially if you've been involved in anything you're making or so, suddenly everybody's super excited that this is the best thing ever or so. And then the product goes out to the market and it fails. And majority of the time is you are in a bubble and everybody was agreeing. In fact, every time you are in a meeting and everybody's just saying, this is the best thing ever, panic, and try and bring in diversity in there where uh, somebody will come along and just is like, right, have, how about thinking about have you have you thought about this how about this idea so it should be radically different and disruptive but not too disruptive obviously you want to get a product out and that's where diversity comes in although it shouldn't be a tick box and it shouldn't be a stereotype of a person or a, somebody being a female or ethnic minority will bring along whatever stereotypically stereotypical views you have of that uh, type of people or so uh, it just brings in more creativity and more importantly your customers who the products are getting out to they are all diverse so you're you making products which relate to everybody who's out there your team is formed of almost a subset of what uh, the consumers you are aiming at so i think that that to me is key especially in the creative field it just brings in more innovation more more creative thinking mm -hmm. okay let me, let me just say mm -hmm. like a, a lot of that and again re-emphasize it's it's more about diverse thinking as opposed to just 
being visually diverse because it's pointless yeah. having a tick box exercise of having diversity when uh, if you pe the people you're hiring are still thinking exactly the same. So diversity where it comes along and play plays the magic, it's when there's diverse thinking. Nice, very nice. And, and as part of that as well, I know you're on the advisory board for women in games. So what would you say to encourage more women and minorities into gaming? So uh, I uh, so I stepped down from Women in Games Advisory Board just last, uh, sorry, beginning of this year. What's very, very common is majority of the minority, this is the ethnic minority, and women in, uh, in the video games and the tech sector are the minorities, uh, don't apply for roles when they come up. And that's the biggest factor. How do you attract people who feel they wouldn't uh, belong in there? And unfortunately, it's not good enough to say, right, we tried our best and we just don't have any uh, female applicants or so. No, you need to change your process. Uh, this is for uh, any, any size community. So if you're not getting diverse applicants, it's your job to change that, go and reach out. And a very simple way, which we encourage with women games, women games as well. So uh, it doesn't require any effort, but going out to any even on Twitter, just using a simple language of, we are, we've got this vacancy, we are looking for diverse applicants, just that word. Or we, we want more diversity within our team, admitting we are not that diverse, it's, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, and don't be shy to do that because that's how you bring changes about. Because a lot of companies uh, get to that sort of like, well, we tried, uh, but nobody's applied, so tough. That's just not good enough. But, but by doing that, though, is there not a risk, potentially, that if, if I was to see that, I would think, well, that company's just got a tick box exercise? No. So this is, uh, again, uh, the way, if you advertise that we are looking for diverse uh, applicants, you need to justify why yeah. and, and what you're working on. And, you know, that, that needs to be part of that language as well. And the biggest, uh, if it ends up being a tick, tick box exercise, it doesn't help you. The company at all whatsoever because that person will join and within three months or six months or so will leave because then keeping your diverse talent is part of the process i mean that's you know so it doesn't end at just literally just going out there and ticking that box or so so yeah uh, uh, unfortunately yeah if anybody goes for that sort of shortcuts or so it, it just doesn't work yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's why I was asking the question, because I think I absolutely agree with you. I think, you know, if, if companies want to be more diverse, they need to explain why, why they want to do so. What are the benefits to them and also to those individuals? So people see the authenticity almost behind it rather than it just being that, that tick box exercise. And, and tell me a little bit about the mentoring cafe. Okay. So this is part of uh, when I was at Women in Games, uh, so we ran a mentoring cafe, which was uh, uh, basically a speed mentoring session. Uh, it was in Brighton. So we have this annual video games conference which takes place in Brighton uh, every year in summer. We decided to run a mentoring cafe. And so it was advertised on your usual event, Bright or so. And we were expecting just, uh, it, was, it was mainly because it's women in games, I was helping out uh, uh, as one of the two individuals who, who set, came up with this idea, uh, we 
expected all the females to come along also from the video games industry. So when I sat there, I've got this wonderful young lady who worked in marketing and advertising in Brighton. So uh, straight away, just uh, uh, so how, how did you hear about this event? It's like, oh, uh, I just was on event Brighton, looked at the events happening in Brighton. And this came up and it's like a women in games uh, mentoring cafe. And uh, say, so first of all, I didn't know there's a video games industry in, the Brit- in Britain, you know? And it was like, yeah, for most of us in our industry, and I don't know if you were aware of how big and thriving the industry is, which probably would have been surprised when I told you the scale of the size uh, of the revenue it brings in. Uh, she was really much the same. And two, uh, you have just told me in that session, everything I'm doing in this market, I hate my job. I hate going to my job. It is terrible, although she's in the creative sector because she's doing marketing and so Everything I can do, I can do in the video games industry. Why did I not know that? And what's amazing is it took a year or so, she wrote back to me and just said, I'm in the video games industry and I love my job. And that's the simple, uh, I think that's the magic, which I thought summarized the entire uh, cafe session we had. And that's the whole idea about Bayman Games as well and, and all these organizations which are trying. How do you attract people? There's no one set formula, but you need to do a lot of this set of activities which make people feel, I will belong there. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm just going to add a bit more onto that, uh, especially because your audience may not necessarily know video games industry or so, but video games industry, like every other industry or so, uh, you don't have to have your classic programming or artist or design degree etc all qualifications or experience uh you need accountants you need lawyers name it and that's it it is a large large business so if you like video games but your qualification is accountancy or you're a lawyer or so you can do exactly the job you're doing in the video games industry and especially if you're that young thinking more creative thinking and want to be surrounded by creative thinkers, uh, then uh, it's the perfect industry to do exactly the same job you'll be doing elsewhere. Yeah, and, and I like that because that's like combining your expertise, like you said, whether, you know, whatever your, your expertise is, finance or, you know, you're a lawyer or, or marketing, HR, whatever it might be. Yeah. But in combining that with your passion, if you're really passionate about video games, and it's the same with any industry, to be fair, but... I guess it's, it's almost promoting that to those people. So all those people are out there. You said it's, you know, it's the it's such a huge industry. But do those people who are on the receiving end of that realize that actually they could pursue a career in that industry? And I think that's something that's important to to be able to advocate. So uh, on the back of that, who who does the gaming industry currently attract to work there? Is it naturally attracting? that diverse crowd of people or is it do you think they maybe need to do some more work on that to almost promoting the opportunities for all of these people no we definitely need to do a lot more work so i mentioned we are 30 years old uh, last year and 30 years young as such uh, for the first time last year we did uh, industry census and this is might sound scary and crazy so uh, you know a well-established industries they've been doing census of who works in the industry for years and years so we are that young that this happened just last year for the first time 
before then we had uh, the creative sectors so we used to do surveys and it, it would be like 100 people in the video games industry would fill out that survey and they would quote those as like four percent ethnic minority in the video games industry etc etc uh, so for finally we had uh, our trade body uh, and we worked with i was on the advisory board on there we had a credible census and thus we found out we've got uh, 10% ethnic minority in the video games industry. So there's work to be done on there. So, but then keep in mind, uh, this is the very first census we did. So it was well publicized. So some of those results might be a bit skewed. We, we had a very good sample size. So it was 25% of the video games industry took part because a lot of the census are a bit pointless if you've got a very tiny amount of sample size because it, then mm -hmm. it's very, very difficult to get a very credible um, results out of that and based on that but you have to start somewhere we started last year we're going to do one uh in two years time so it was last year so it'll be one next year uh that's when we'll be able to see a comparison of where things are but it's only the year two years after that where we can actually see what the trends are and this right. is how scary things are and this is how you can't just go back and uh in time, if you could, you would have done this a lot, lot earlier, but that's how infant we are, that we've just started taking this seriously of let's figure out who's working in this industry. So, mm -hmm. and that's important because how do you see, how do you attract more people? You need some sort of data to see if it's actually making any difference, whatever you're trying or so. So our trade body uh, has got this fantastic initiative, Raise the Game, and have got the industries who are already well established uh, in the video games to set some very very simple bars of task in terms of diversity uh attracting more diverse people also and that's again just a start that was launched uh, earlier this year that campaign so we are in that infant of campaigns of attracting more people uh it's always mattered but it's just something which unfortunately this is how the young the industry is that some of these things take a while to get going and moving so we've got a great momentum and yes i think uh, we, we we still have that issue unfortunately whatever we will do uh media uh is such a powerful sort of uh, and uh, not just media and you'll see it'll be very obvious but you know uh Video games industry is still going through that stage of uh, rock and roll and uh, hip hop music and movies or so. If you remember, uh, uh, sometimes still the case or so, if something goes wrong or so, then, uh, or somebody co commits some violent crime, etc. Oh, it was, they were listening to rock and roll. This was, was the 70s or 80s. I mean, it, it, it was just an easy way to justify why somebody's odd in society or so. And, you had the same or oh, too much violent movies were being watched by these individuals and so on. And video games have come into that almost like, yeah, it's a, oh yeah, they were playing video games or so. Unfortunately, this is a very easy sort of, when you don't want to tackle what the actual issue was with somebody who's just doesn't fit into society, it's easy to blame in something which people can relate to. And so uh, what's really odd is typically those phases happen uh, and video games industry should have been now let off the hook and social media would have come along and been like, oh, yeah, a person spent way too much time on social media and uh, got really instigated into doing whatever they do. So, yeah. and, but 
the beauty of our industry, which is slightly uh, the weakness, is we basically anything new which comes along, which relates to younger people, the classic thing is social media, has fully integrated into video games. So video games have chat and everything else integrated in there. So we are almost, rather than being a separate industry, we've basically encompassed all these amazing new uh, uh, communication uh, channels or so, which everybody's on, uh, and become that industry as well. So, uh, to the question of uh, what uh, that's such a powerful uh, thing, where perception-wise, with your mentors, your teachers, your uncles or aunts or your parents or everybody else, when you want to get in the video games industry, you'll be like, okay, right, great. But then, when are you going to think of a real career? And that's how it's when I was wanting to get in the video games industry or so. Uh, again, I was headstrong. I knew what I was going to go for. So, but with most uh, young individuals getting into the industry, that's still a problem. And when I say young individuals, uh, including females, that's also very sort of good. And you know, it comes from a good place. You want every, your kid, your, whoever you're mentoring, even your teachers, so one mean well. It's like, right, get a career, get their accountancy career, because we know how that works and how your career will pan out or so. And so that stops and that goes with, uh, I think a lot of creative uh, and, uh, you know, music and uh, art, et cetera. And especially, I, I'm going to slightly generalize this, but I think with ethnic minorities, it's very, very obvious. And I, I don't know if you can relate to, but I, you know, being from my Indian family or so, it is, I did uh, mathematics and computer sciences because it was just something, I was good as maths, but I was, bloody good at art as well uh, but it just was no question ever that I'll actually do art as a degree or so yeah I, I, I remember I, I can give you a very similar example where um, I was a, pretty much a genius at graphic design I could do it with my eyes closed and I just get straight A's it was effortless and I loved it and then when I went to pick my GCSEs um, it was both my, my dad as well as my tutor who just completely discouraged me because I wanted to do graphics and art. Yeah. Um, and both of them said, no, you need to stick with the academics. Um, and they gave me geography. And I was like, hey, hey, geography, you know, and I pretty much flunked it. Um, and yeah, but th because again, they're thinking longer term, they, d they think it's a more secure yeah. path. It, yeah. it comes from a good place. And yeah. that's, unfortunately, this is where, you know, uh, video games industry, and creative industry, it, it remains. And this is where, you know, individuals like myself and the ambassadors in our industry, we try and change that message uh, where uh, debunk all these sort of myths of what video games industry, the media perceives it as mm. also. Uh, and and it's a di difficult task because it's, it's not something you can, and I think everybody knows you can't go against, uh, especially when somebody's grieving on something terrible which has happened. Uh, and it's used, you know, I mean, uh, was it just last year where the president of the United States also used video games as an example? And it's such a powerful and easy way to get out of what the actual problem is itself. Mm. And I guess for me, myself, personally, I'm not a gamer, and, and nor do I have children. So I cannot directly relate to the video games industry as such. Um, but there is a general perception, as you've alluded to already, that there are conflicting views around it. You know, there's the addiction to games. There's um, it, it, it results in kids being antisocial because they're on the games all the time. 
Um, it could be perceived as time wasting and, you know, parents are struggling to cope. I've got a couple of my friends who are like highly stressed when you talk about the kids wanting to be on the PS4 all the time. Um, you know, there's a safety around being on the internet when you're young um, and, and children being protected from that vulnerability and, and, you know, the bullying potentially as well. So, you know, as, as an ambassador that you are for video games and, and the industry, how can you debunk some of that? Right. Uh, it's not, again, you have to try uh, every little, and I think a, a lot is just being straightforward on what the reality is, because it's very easy when uh, you re read up on certain things which you can relate to, like, right, uh, video games are addictive. But then when you look at the data itself or so, it's actually very, uh, it, if a person has that addictive nature, then they will be addicted to whatever else you give them instead of that. So uh, a, a lot of these things, so I, I'm glad you mentioned about the, uh, especially, um, I think it was last year when World Health, Health Organization uh, put down video games as one of the addictive sort of uh, uh uh, things which people need to be warned about for health. And then this year, and, and, and it's very odd because they should have actually put Netflix or TV as exactly the same because the, the criteria is very, very similar. Uh, and you know, when people are binge watching series or so, uh, they're addicted to that, but nobody wants to go into that. But this year with COVID, uh, it very sort of relatable right now. And hopefully people who watch TV, which most people do now when they're sitting at home, uh, they changed that to like it's a healthy thing to do, uh, play video games uh, while you're in lockdown or so. And that's the thing that, it, and again, you know, it improves your communication skills. Uh, not everybody, unfortunately, you know, we, we used to giving this sort of the extroverts, the people, uh, especially the kids or so out there who are sports, uh, good at feel physically fit uh, to play things and when you're an introvert or you're not into sports so it's uh, you're almost excluded out of everything else so and but video games is the beauty of that it's very very inclusive uh it doesn't judge on who's playing it or so it's everybody can play along or so uh what i really find uh, usually funny and i've got a number of my friends uh is uh, yeah, they just the way you say i don't understand video games etc so and it's like, yeah, you see you're playing Candy Crush there on your phone. That is video games. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, but that's not games, right? No, I'm, yeah, I'm talking about, you know, you know, Fortnite and what my kids are playing. And like, no, 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 it's all about gaming. It's all, same with TV. So if you, if you remember, I don't know, I'm, I'm old enough to do, I remember this. So but you were encouraged to put your hobbies in your CV as a moviegoer. Uh, this was probably, I think, in the 80s or so. And that was quite a cool thing to put, you know, just something you do. How crazy is that? Would you put that on your CV now? And, you know, you wouldn't, because everybody watches movies, it's not a big deal anymore. It shouldn't have been a big, big deal back then. But same with the word uh, video gamers or gamers or so. You know, that word is almost, it's going to disappear from our vocabulary because it should be just, I, I spend time uh, playing games, but, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't need to be tagged as a gamer or so. Uh, and it's it's going to happen. I mean, it's good because you know, as I say, mobile phones the most amazing thing, uh, which is brought to reality of something which you can spend time while you're in your as they call it the Starbucks queue or whatever else waiting. You want to kill time commuting. Music is another 
uh, YouTube, watching YouTube videos, etc. These are all things which you, you're going through a process which unfortunately you don't have a choice. You have to commute to work. You have to kill that bit of the time. What do you do during killing that time? And this form of entertainment are so important because it just gets you off walk. I mean, who, who enjoys just riding a tube and looking at all the stations uh, <laughs> as they're passing by? You want to distract yourself from away from that. Plus, and unfortunately, uh, um, it, it, it's the case, especially early in the morning, most commuters, you wouldn't see people smiling or so. So it actually gets you into that mind frame of like, yeah, this is terrible. Whereas in, if you just escape from that and you're on your music or your uh, videos or video games for that matter, uh, then that you've escaped from that world and then you're back into work fresh, get on with your job. So how would you explain that to parents who've got their young children who seem apparently to be addicted to playing these games and you know anytime they're out of school they want to be on their ps4s for example so p p parents one uh, need to understand uh, why the kids uh, you know a parent would know their kid far better than anybody else will uh, and they need to they need to set their limits just like with tv uh, or anything else or so uh, you set certain times or so Yes, if your kid is just doing nothing else but playing video games all the time, then that's more a parental sort of responsibility to just say, look, um, you need to play for two hours. And then after that, this, this, uh, you know, we are on a dining table. Well, unfortunately, I'm sorry, you can't have your mobile phone playing games while we are on a dining table. But again, I, I don't have kids either. And so I'm not going to advise parents on the right way to parent, but it to be, it, it is a very simple responsibility like anything else. So, so I guess what I'm hearing then is, is it's, it's, it's simply another form of entertainment, just like watching TV or movies, Netflix, or going on social media. And it's about actually just Absolutely. moderation. Same with music, same with reading books. You know, you could, hmm. you could have somebody who would read books to addiction level or so. Uh, and if they're doing that in terrible lighting, before you know it, their eyesight is, uh, become extremely poor. Again, that's a parent's responsibility to make sure, yes, great, you're reading books, uh, but in perfect lighting or so, and setting times or so, you know, a kid reading book uh, till one o'clock in the morning, even if it's the best fantasy Harry Potter uh, book or so, it's still destructive for that uh, kid. Mm -hmm. And exactly the same, playing video games till one o'clock in the morning, is it's not really acceptable, but maybe on a Saturday you want to relax because it's a Sunday after so and something I wanted to also bring up you know um the parliament select committee so Mark Zuckerberg has been brought up before them previously and you were brought up before the parliament select committee and grilled so would you care to share a little bit of that experience with us uh, yeah sure does the video games create algorithms which make people addicted to or especially ethnic minorities getting more addicted to video games. And it's a bit of a silent because we had other representatives as well. We had women in games and so. And then I sort of smiled and said, no. But uh, the, this is funny to me. I don't know if you can see the, that question why it's, uh, it's, and you know, the movie industry and, uh, things you hear about where Facebook with Cambridge uh, Analytica and the Russian meddling with the uh, uh, US elections, etc. What the perception we have formed of AI and technology is far bigger 
uh, and scarier than, and when I say movie industry, you know, the Terminator and some uh, AI will take over the world, etc. which is, you know, uh, sci-fi to some extent, uh, reality as well, because uh, things, things are possible as well. But to most people who do not understand that, will take it to the extreme and assume that's what's happening. So that question comes from like, wow, you're creating something which wants to take over the world and then it's going to have a brain on its own or so. And I could see that's what this person asking that question was thinking. And the reality is, unfortunately, um, if anybody thought, we, you know, you, you as a human being will be made redundant, the good news is, no, you would be. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. And uh, so... And, Everybody who's building products, vast majority, do not want to kill off their customer. If you make somebody addictive or so, and they become depressed and are then unable to integrate into society and are taken out of society or so, they're not your customers. Why would you deliberately make something which would take uh, a person who's enjoying your product away from that? And so, no, nobody deliberate. Yes, there are certain, uh, and this is, uh, sorry, I'm going to slightly all over the place on this, but I'll give you a very simple example if it's, if it's difficult to relate. But supermarkets, a classic one, where they use uh, similar AI sort of experts or so, uh, but sorry, AI is the wrong word there. They use individual experts who would make, uh, they would put milk next to bread, etc. And there's a science behind to yeah. force you to buy things and the aisles are designed. So every industry has the, uh, ways to make things a bit more efficient so they can retain their customers and they can attract new customers, etc. And that's probably what they were relating to or so. But no, nobody, no right-minded uh, industry individuals would be making certain bit of software so they would make people uh, addicted to it. Or so, But having said that, you know, social media is one where are they deliberately making things which forces you to go out there? No, you have a choice, right? And learning that uh, is, is fairly important. So that's why I found that a bit funny. But a lot of the questions went on to that. I actually enjoyed that session pretty well because it gave me the podium to say how young we are as an industry, which again, as we started off, it finished pretty, pretty well on that. Uh, the assumption being the industry is doing crazy well, all this games everybody's playing video games or so then it should be the video games industry self-policing itself and uh, uh putting that money back into the industry to make a better industry it unfortunately doesn't work that way when you look at revenues any any industry when you look at the this is how much the revenues contributed that usually is about the 10 or 20 percent of the top earners in that industry so it doesn't spread across and it doesn't necessarily get put back so it needs advocacy orgs like baby games, um, trade bodies, et cetera, to start regulating and helping the industry. And the government needs to come into this as well. Again, if, if the government is receiving the crazy amount of revenue from this industry, it needs to put back into that industry as well. Why are their charities, where their trade bodies, et cetera, um, creative industry sector bodies, which are set up, which are well, well funded by government. And that's lacking in the video games industry because of the very simple fact of like, yeah, but that's just video games. And so it gave us an opportunity to say how serious this industry is and how government needs to be more proactive and be uh, helping this industry, which is otherwise in its infancy, but 
revenue-wise, it's probably bigger than any uh, industry you can think of. And, and so just to, to wrap up then, would you yes. like to share with us um, the best career advice that you've ever been given? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, okay. So I've been in positions of leadership. So this will be easier for somebody who is in position of leadership or more senior to relate to. But maybe after I, I cover it, I'll see if, it, if anybody in any position can relate to this as well. But the best advice I've been given, um, uh, you should be thinking about how the company goes on and everything else, the bigger picture of things. I know it's difficult to think about things like that, but uh, that's where you have your sort of right-hand person or so taking over, knowing exactly what you're doing. So I thought, well, what a, it was fantastic advice I was given 10 years ago. I still practice it. Anytime I go along, you'll see who'll be the next person who can take over. And especially the task which you might now find very trivial, not challenging. I love challenges in a workplace. And the uh, only way you can actually introduce more challenges in your job is what you already know, what you've already done, pass it on to somebody else who will find it an amazing challenge. And it frees up your time to do more challenging stuff instead. I love that. I love the fact that you, you talk about being the leader, not the follower. And it doesn't have to be in a leader role, even it's in any role that you go and do, right? It's, it's about stretching yourself. And I had this conversation with someone recently, I think it was on a, on a previous podcast interview where um, we were talking about why women in particular actually will need to feel they can do all aspects of the job before they will apply for it. Yeah. And my question there is, well, if you can do all of the, the points that are on there, where's the challenge going to be? What's the learning? What's the stretch going to be? You know, if you want yeah. to grow in your career, then you kind of want to have an aspect of your job, which is um, challenging for you, which will help you to grow, to learn new things. And it's, it's similar to what you said there. As you become more familiar with aspects of your job, if you can hand that on to somebody else and delegate it, it gives you, it frees you up to then yeah. almost evolve so, that role and make it your own. Right. Let me tell you a secret, which is not a secret uh, at all. Uh, you're typical, and I'm glad you brought up uh, a female as an example, but minority also comes onto this as well. And a lot of people also fall into this trap as well. So the superpower, which majority and male have, when you look at a job description, especially if it's bullet point, uh, they will look at that job description and say, ah, okay, I can do six of those, four, I don't know, but I'll wing it. And they'll apply for that role, go in the interview, super confident, and ace that interview and just be confident like the other four, I can learn and job, etc. So unfortunately, and especially with younger people, and if you're a minority or female, so you tend to look at it as like, oh, I can't do those four. I'll, I'll, when I'm ready, I'll apply for that role when I can do all 10. Every company's job description, and, and this is where the companies need to change. You don't put bullet point jobs because then you won't attract people who you want to attract will be uh, the diverse uh, individuals or so. So, And there are ways to change job descriptions so they're not uh, forced. Because again, yes, you want in your job description uh, must-haves and ideal and in your ideal you're looking at a unicorn and unicorn doesn't exist and so what, this is why I try to give an example most companies are looking for unicorn when they advertise a position if you are a horse then you've done the job because you'll be the best because that's a reality when you start thinking I'm not good enough 
because then in your interview process as well, also, again, you're looking at the things you can't do rather than focusing on what you're amazing at selling yourself and then how you're going to look at everything else, which you see as a challenge. And that's why I said, it, you know, it's not a secret, but it's a lot of people who are successful uh, and end up getting those positions and why we don't have that much of diversity is because in their brain, they don't even think like, surely I, I you know, I, 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 sh I should be honest. I should be able to then be nervous and say, no, I can't do all those four things. I'm sorry. Uh, and then I'm sorry in your head and not apply for that role. And that's the reality. That needs to change. So, you know, a class example would be if you go to Oxford, uh, you'll be the next Newton or so because you'll be crazy successful at Oxford or Cambridge or you know, any university or so. And, but nobody tells you everybody who's gone there and failed or somebody who's gone there stressed out and committed suicide, that will never be in a stats. So again, mm -hmm. this works with society as well as so because you only are hearing that um, in technology, there are not enough females and self-fulfills, then it just means not more females will apply because they just don't feel they're good enough. Thank you, Kish. I really appreciate you taking time today. It's been phenomenal just hearing your story and, and, and watching you speak with so much passion about the video games industry and I think from from everything you've said today as well um, a big message for our audience and for people who are looking at where they want to take their careers if there are people out there who are passionate about video games then you know irrespective of your expertise there are those opportunities and I think that's a big takeaway from this as well there's you know that the industry is looking to expand that diversity and to bring in more people who who have that passion for the industry because that will help the industry to evolve to an even higher level. As I said, really great to hear your story, to, to see how passionate you are. And, you know, I really encourage our audience to open their minds to, whether it's for themselves or for their children, to, to look at this industry as something to, to explore. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Kish, and I appreciate you taking time out. We'll speak okay. soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And if you enjoyed and gained value from today's episode, then do please leave a review telling us your key learnings and what you enjoyed the most. And do please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can spread the word on life leadership, creating a life of choice, freedom and new possibilities. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn. And if you would like to learn more about how we can work together, either DM me on LinkedIn or email me. All details and resources can be found in the show notes.